to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. So glad you could join us. In 2018, Pew Research released a fascinating survey report entitled, Why Americans Go and Don't Go to Religious Services. The top answers from those who participated and do go to worship are points you probably expect and likely identify with. The survey showed most go to religious services because they want to become closer with God. They want their children to have a moral foundation. They desire to be a better person or they seek to find comfort in times of trouble. These are good reasons to go to religious services, especially, of course, Christian worship services. Essentially, what all those answers boil down to is this. People go to church to find meaning, satisfaction, growth, and comfort through their relationship with God and fellowship with his people. If you're tuning in today with an underlying reason like that, you're here for a good and proper reason. But I recognize there are other people tuned in today, non-churchgoers. A warm, warm welcome to you as well. I'm truly glad you're here. You might be watching because your colleague shared a link to this sermon, or maybe you're listening along with your grandma just to make her happy. Whatever the reason you're tuned in, this sermon is for you. Why? Because this sermon is about finding meaning in worship. Churchgoers, let's start with you. You'd probably agree we're meant to find meaning in worship and satisfaction through worship. That's good. But my churchgoers, you probably know you don't always walk away feeling satisfied. Sometimes I feel like church didn't work this week. Or maybe it's a macro issue. Maybe for years you've been thinking church isn't hitting like it used to. Okay, non-churchgoers now. Maybe you don't attend church because it's never hit. Maybe you understand it's great for some people, but it's just not for you. Or maybe you wish church did work for you, but you've tried it. And you found it boring, tiresome, or even painful. Whichever side you're on, this sermon is for you. Throughout this series, we've traveled along with Solomon, Israel's greatest philosopher. We've been asking and answering questions about life's purpose, finding meaning, and seeking satisfaction. And today, we're finally at a chapter which speaks directly to what is satisfying. We're where we're supposed to find meaning. The reality is humans were created to worship. It's in our spiritual DNA to worship. It's good and proper when we turn to worship to find meaning. But to find meaning, consistent, transforming, life-giving meaning, we need to get the who, the why, and the how right when it comes to worship. See, the premise of our passage today isn't that worship gives meaning. It's that true worship leads us to meaning. That's what we're going to unpack, to see Solomon unpack for us today. Through our text, we're going to answer the question, what makes worship work? Or a more fancy way of saying that, how can worship be an effective avenue to find meaning and satisfaction in life? To answer that question, Solomon gives us some paradigm-shifting instructions. But before we get too deep, let me just read our passage. Let's let the philosopher himself set the stage as we get into the who, the why, and the how of worship. Follow with me as I read Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 
to seven. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should not vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Okay, that's our passage. It's short, it's beautiful, but there's a lot going on. So let me give you a little roadmap. I'll be upfront with how we're going to break this text down and what we're going to gain from it. So the plan. Through these seven verses, Solomon gives us four instructions about how to approach God in worship. Those are going to set the tone for four points of this sermon. But don't get the wrong idea. Yes, Solomon tells us four commands for how to worship God, but don't view them as boxes on a checklist. Don't dive into this text with me thinking that these are just four more expectations, rules, or routines to add to your plate. Rather, view these instructions as four loving but firm pieces of advice that help us see God's care and love for us better. View this more as when parents set a curfew for their teenagers. Yes, it might sound like another lame rule, but adults, you know, looking back, you know that was a loving instruction from your parents. They gave that rule because they cared about you. They weren't necessarily anti-fun. They did that so you weren't a zombie in the next morning who couldn't perform well at school. View these instructions in a similar way. These are four instructions from God through Solomon, which are meant as loving blessings. They reveal how much God cares about us. And when followed, they lead us to a worship experience that is true, properly oriented, satisfying, and ultimately a place where you can find meaning and purpose in your life. So with all that said, let's learn four things about God through these four loving paradigm shifting instructions and discuss how embracing them leads to worship that satisfies. The first thing we need to realize about God is how much he cares about your mind. Worship works when you realize how much God cares about your mind. How do we know that? Well, let's unpack Solomon's first instruction. Look at the first half of verse one. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In Solomon's day, that would have been an instruction to take quite literally. Ancient Israel's temple was a place of God's special dwelling. And when you were walking up to the temple, you better check yourself. Imagine it like this. When people are meeting the new king of England, do they just show up? No, that's the king. You dress a certain way and you certainly learn the etiquette. Why? Because that's the king. Your appearance and actions communicate respect to his authority. Now take that concept and apply it not to the king of England, but to the king of the universe. 
God your creator. You better act right. Take Moses, for example. God told Moses when he entered his presence with that burning bush scene, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This wasn't petty. God lovingly explained, hey, by the way, I'm the holy God of the universe. Take off your sandals. This space around me, it's holy too. The reality is God is holy. He's righteous. He's powerful. To approach him is a massive deal. You're encountering unparalleled holiness and power. You better guard your steps. Essentially, when you come before God, you need to give him your full attention and absolute reverence. When he speaks, that's the master of the universe speaking. You better listen up. In the new covenant, we don't have a temple or a burning bush like that. We don't need to worry about ritual washing and special clothing. But what we need to remember is what the ritual washing and special clothing pointed to and signified. Coming to God with a right mind. A mind that's focused and intentional, reverent and appreciative. We need to realize that God cares about our mind. And thus, a key to meaningful and satisfying worship is knowing that God cares about where our head is at during worship. He doesn't want you just tuning in and leaving alike. He doesn't desire that you just show up and hum along to the song. He lovingly and mercifully lets you know that he requires your undivided attention and absolute reverence. And that's good news. It's a blessing that God demands full attention and reverence. Why? It's because he knows we're tempted, to our great detriment, to make worship about ourselves and not him. And when we do that, that's when we run into trouble. Listen to the second half of verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Essentially, Solomon is checking us on an issue that is all too rampant when it comes to worship. People will define their worship by how elaborate they can make it. Is my voice the prettiest? Is the liturgy austere? Are the rituals divine? Does it look like I'm really getting into it? If your self-perception is your primary concern in worship, you're offering the sacrifice of fools. You're not really worshiping God. In that case, you're more like Nadab and Abihu, Old Testament priests who thought they could one-up God's instructions when it came to worshiping God with their own pious creativity. That didn't end well for them. That's because our primary focus in worship has to be about who God is and what he does. We get true satisfaction in worship when we come to receive God's grace. We find meaning in worship when we attentively listen to God's word. If we, intentionally or inadvertently, make worship about us, our preferences, our appearances, that's a recipe for disappointment because we're not worthy of worship. If we come to worship unwilling to lay down our distractions or offer them up as prayers, we'll miss the help and grace that's on offer. So what makes worship work? Realize how much God cares about your mind. He knows that our worship of him is what's best for us. He knows we get the most out of worship when we give him our undivided attention and absolute reverence. 
That's because he alone is the source of growth, comfort, and meaning that we ought to be seeking through worship. So, put God's holiness and grace in the foreground. Put your appearance and actions in the background where they belong. While it may very well be a nice expression of our attention and reverence to dress up for church or to have a beautiful liturgy, we undermine worship when our dress up, and not the God we dress up for, becomes the focus. Guard your steps when you come to worship. Realize how much God cares for your mind, and see worship become more meaningful and satisfying when you seek to worship God with undivided attention and absolute reverence. The second thing we need to realize is how much God cares about your heart. As you might expect, God desires sincerity and humility in worship. But this passage raises that point with a very specific angle. Look at verse 2. Solomon's wise and loving instruction. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. So here we have the image of a heart hasty to speak. Think of that along the lines of Jesus's words in Luke 6, 45. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The idea here is whatever people have on their hearts, meaning perhaps their attitude or priorities, it will eventually come out of their mouths, their words and their deeds. And so with this connection in mind, Solomon gives us this instruction. Don't be rash with your mouth and don't let your heart be hasty. And he tells us why the second half of verse two, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Remember what we talked about? God is holy. He is righteous. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. If your boss or the principal called you into their office, would you be quick to speak? No, I hope you would be intentional about your words. You're not talking with a friend. You're talking with someone who holds your career, your future in their hands. You make sure to speak wisely, carefully, to reflect your relationship with them. How much more so than with God, right? But there's even a critical difference here. God is not telling us just to put on a filter. He's not saying, Think whatever you want, but when you talk to me, you better be respectful. On the contrary, think about what God himself says in Jeremiah 17. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. There is no filter we can put on with God. Solomon isn't just telling us to watch our mouths. He's telling us when we come to worship, we got to check our heart, check our attitude, check our priorities. Embrace a true posture of humility and sincerity. And he tells us this because it can be so tempting to just talk the talk when it comes to worship. Just saying whatever we have to to appease God, our pastor, or our parents by saying what we want, what they want us to say. But this is dangerous. When we just talk the talk in worship, we miss out on so, so much. While our holy talk might come quickly to us, while we might know all the right words to say, God will not be fooled. Remember, he is the holy God who searches the heart. And right relationship with him, full reception of his blessings and benefits, the meaning and satisfaction that comes through worship, only comes when we are receiving it with an open heart. 
Foolish sacrifices and empty words are meaningless to God. By a, but a humble and sincere heart, that's what he wants to see. That's what God desires. Because he knows that a humble and sincere heart is best suited to receive the grace he pours out and bestows on his people. So, the conclusion, the end of verse 2 to 3. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Realize how much God cares about your heart. Embrace the right attitude in worship. And as you do, see how worship takes on a new significance and provides new or greater benefits. Now the third point you need to realize is how much God cares about your integrity. Building on the previous point of our need to be sincere and humble, God expects us to be pious and diligent. Another way of saying that, and one that captures the tone of this text, is saying that when it comes to worship, God hates, with a capital H, hypocrisy and flashy displays of religion. Look at verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Clearly, God feels strongly about this point, but it's worth briefly unpacking the term vow. When I was discussing this passage with Paul, he shared that something he learned is to see a distinction between a holy commitment and a vow. In a holy commitment, we approach God with a reverent mind and that sincere heart, and we promise to give him what he deserves. So, without drawing attention to ourselves or making a spectacle of it, we'll make a commitment to worship God as we should. Regularly seek him in prayer. Commit to relationship him with him by reading his word daily. This is good and right. Holy commitments are things we should make. But we should not make vows. Because if you make a vow, as our text explains, you're really playing with fire. So what's a vow? Imagine a politician making a campaign promise. In front of the world, they make some grandiose promise about what they will do. And by making this promise, they're counting on people applauding them, supporting them, honoring them with finances and votes. But what happens with most campaign promises? They're typically broken. Many politicians will use vows to gain support, but when they get what they want, they delay, delay, delay until they hope it's forgotten about. Do not do that with your faith. If you make some grand vow, you better follow through. Otherwise, you're a fool, and God takes no pleasure with you. Why? Because it's clear you don't honor and respect him to keep your promise to him. Him, holy God, your creator and king. And similarly, if you used a vow to gain reputation or prestige or respect, you abuse God's name and honor to gain credibility. God cares about integrity, especially so because, and this is key, if you tarnish your reputation as a Christian, that affects other people. Many people will say how the hypocrisy of Christians turn them off Christianity. While that isn't right, Christianity's truth is not dependent upon Christians. It is a reality. Hypocrisy hurts people. So that's why Solomon's wise advice is verse 5. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. 
we're tempted to be overly ambitious and calculating in worship. Along these lines, we find ourselves making vows as a form of a deal with God. Hey God, if you give me that promotion, I'll attend every prayer meeting for a year. Or, dear Lord, if you bless me with that dream spouse, I'll give you more than I ever gave before. You might be tempted to do something like this. But the reality is, after you get what you want, you'll probably forget about your vow or realize it was beyond your ability or means to fulfill. The good news is, before we destroy our integrity before God or our reputation before our family, church, or the world, God makes it clear. He wants nothing to do with deals. He takes no bribe. Realize God cares about your integrity. Worship based around vows and flashy displays of religion gets you nowhere. You might just hurt yourself or other people. Rather, God simply requires pious, diligent worship. Nothing grand, nothing spectacular, nothing burdensome, simply our honesty. For when we're honest, that's when we make commitments that are sustainable and conducive to growth. When we're diligent in the simple, quiet things, that's when we're best suited to receive his blessings and glorious gifts. Our last point. You want worship to work? Realize how much God cares about your words. Again, this point builds upon all the rest. Look at the first half of verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Our mouths can be dangerous. We remember, we have to remember, what we say will have eternal ramifications. As Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So what's Solomon telling us here? When it comes to worship, God expects honest and pure words. And we could say this is as opposed to meaningless and empty words. We need to be honest with ourselves and God, especially in worship, especially in prayer, because when we're honest in these points, we better see our need for God's mercy and grace. And when we better see our need for God's mercy and grace, the better equipped we are to ask for God's help in prayer. And if there's one thing we know about God, it's that he's a God who delights in answering the prayers of his people. While it might be painful to be honest in prayer, God calls on us to do that because it's exactly what we need. The reality is we're tempted to value the effect of our worship and prayer by quantity and not quality. But based on everything we already covered, we should know that's not how God operates. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. God cares about your words. You won't trick him or impress him by heaping up stacks of repeated prayers or by repeating the course of a worship song over and over again until you cry. The amount of words doesn't matter, but the quality of them do. Be honest with God. That's what he wants. And he wants that because that's what's best for you. Honest words and honest worship and prayer creates context for God to do amazing things that his people will easily notice. Don't deprive yourself or your neighbor of the benefits of your true worship. God knows what's best for us. Be honest in your prayer. 
In this sermon, we've looked and learned from Solomon four instructions to make our worship work. We've learned four postures to take in our mind, our heart, our attitude, and our speech, which will transform worship from boring routine to life-giving relationship. But as we've gone through them, I hope you took away the main point. These instructions are not meant to be a burdensome checklist. Rather, they're meant to reveal God's heart for us, His people. He loves us so much, He tells us how to get the most out of our relationship with Him. How to create circumstances for His mercy and grace to flow in ways we otherwise wouldn't expect. These four instructions aren't laws to weigh us down. They're good news to set us free. To free us from man-centered worship from empty words, from hypocrisy, from meaningless religion. In the end, we should look at these instructions and be able to understand what the great Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs said when he wrote this. Every Christian may truly say, God loves me better than I do myself. And if you're doubting that, believer, look to Jesus. My brothers and sisters, God loved you so much that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. So when God gives us the ultimate instruction to repent of our sin and to trust in Jesus, like all the instructions we just discussed, this ultimate one is meant for your good. It's meant to free you. This is the instruction that all the others pointed to and actually depend on. God loves us so much he demands that we turn from the ways of the world and embrace the ways of Christ the Savior. He does so not because he's petty, not because he needs our validation, not because he needs our servitude. No, he demands this because it's what's best for us. What makes worship work? How does worship become a source of satisfaction, fulfillment, comfort, joy, and life's meaning itself? Put Christ at the center of it. He's the Savior, and He transforms us from the inside out. Trust in Him, be saved, and find the meaning and satisfaction you're meant to find in life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these loving instructions we receive through the ancient philosopher. We recognize that though it appears like a, a set of rules, they actually reveal your heart. These are blessings, pieces of advice that lead us to live the best way possible. So God, as we turn to you in worship to find meaning, to find satisfaction, joy, and comfort, help us remember that you must be at the center of it, your loving character, and your wise, wise words. So Father, as we close this time together, as we close this word, help us to remember the gist of what might be said, how to find meaning in life. It's to fear you and you alone. So Father, Help us live this way, for it is what is best for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In today's sermon, we saw that God loves us more than we could love ourselves. I hope that is a message that is encouraging to you, and I hope that whoever you are, wherever you are, you will turn to true worship, as defined by this passage, to find meaning and hope in life. But as always, for more messages of hope, please visit us at www.gracebc.ca. Take care and God bless.